our deliverer and he is with us I will not fear for he is with me I will not be dismayed for he is my God he will strengthen me he will help me he will uphold me with the right hand of his righteousness aren't you glad that's true Hallelujah. Well, say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. We've been diving into the book of Revelation and we need to recap a little bit things that we've said before so that we're all up to speed on the things that are yet to come the book of revelation begins with the letters to the churches the seven letters to the churches in asia and immediately following that john hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet that says come up here and he's caught away into heaven he experiences a, a type of the rapture and there in heaven he sees god he sees the throne that god is seated on he sees the rainbow around the throne he sees the four beasts that surround the throne. He sees the 24 elders with crowns of gold on their head, which represent the church in its entirety. He sees the crystal sea, which is the church itself. And he sees Jesus, who is commissioned to open the seven seals. Now, chapter 6, we talked about last time, chapter 6 and 7, I believe. And in chapter 6, it tells us about those seven seals. It's important, and I made mention of this before, but, uh, but I think it uh, is worthy of repeating. And that is, these seven seals uh, pertain to the entirety of the tribulation period. It's, uh, it's easy for us to, to make a mistake and think it's a timeline, but it's not. The first seal that's opened is the Antichrist is revealed. The second seal that's opened is the war. Uh, a, a great war against Israel. Now these two things happen at the beginning of the tribulation period. The war is the, the war is spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39 where Russia gathers a coalition army of predominantly Islamic nations to attack Israel from the north through Syria. And it says in a 24 hour period God defeats Russia and the coalition army that it brings but not just the defeat of the the armies themselves he rains fire and hail down upon the countries and destroys five sixths of those nations now folks if we're interpreting this right and you know a little bit of speculation i guess is helpful for us to put things in a modern context But too much speculation isn't good because there are some things that we don't know. But if we are correct in assuming or understanding that the sixth part that God leaves of these nations, the coalition army of Russia, those nations, according to the list in Ezekiel 38, those nations are predominantly the Islamic nations that are state sponsors of terrorism in our day. 
the Middle East and North African nations where the real trouble is coming from in the world that we live in. If we are correct in, a, in understanding that when God leaves just the sixth part, that's 17% of those nations standing, God effectively wipes out Islam in a day. Now with all the trouble we see created by this so-called religion of peace, which it never was and never will be, of all the things that are going on in our world and all the problems that are caused associated with it, God deals with it in a 24-hour period. I think it's good for us to realize things like that for this purpose. It's so easy to get underneath the problem when you start praying. Do you know what I mean by that? It's so easy to look at how difficult and how massive our problems are, the problems that surround our country or in our own lives, whatever it might be, and feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. But it's big a problem, and it is a worldwide problem. It is the single biggest problem in the world that, that we live in today, and seems to me. As big as the problem is with Islam and the march of Islam and the increase of Islam and the immigrant refugee situations, whatever you want to call it, in Europe and pertaining to our own country, God deals with it in a matter of hours. Your heavenly father destroys it in hours. The God that said you could ask him for anything that you wanted deals with it in hours. The one that said that he'll never leave you or forsake you deals with it in hours. Are you getting the point? The greater one is in you. Well, back to our story. God deals with Russia and the armies and the nations that come against Israel in a 24-hour period. The next seal that's opened is famine. There is a famine or food shortage in that part of the world. And the, and the book of Revelation deals primarily with the European, Middle Eastern, and uh, Asian and Northern, Northern Africa part of the world. The ring of territory that surrounds the Mediterranean Sea, basically, which was the area controlled by the Roman Empire. So we know that there are food shortages in that part of the world. It tells us that the fourth seal that's opened is death. Now we know that there'll be a lot of death because of the war, but there'll be death through other means as well throughout the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation. The next seal, the fifth seal, is the tribulation martyrs, which tell us that during the tribulation period of time, a lot of Christians are going to be killed for their testimony of Jesus. This will continue up until the last few days of the tribulation period. Finally, the sixth seal is the upheaval of nature, which culminates in the last day of the tribulation when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives talks about the great, great earthquake that takes place, foreshadowing the Battle of Armageddon. Now, 
as you can see, we just covered seven years in a heartbeat. One chapter, chapter six, covers seven years really, really quickly without very much detail at all. From this point forward, chapter eight forward, it begins to give us a little bit more detail about those seven years. But God gives us an overview first. Now, we're going to need to back up and and cover some things or make mention of some things that we've already discovered and some things that we know of from other scriptures, both Old Testament and then further on in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist takes power over the resurrected Roman Empire according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, I think. It talks about the same people that destroy the temple in Jerusalem will be the one that the Antichrist comes from. Now, that doesn't mean he's Italian, but it means he's of the the people of the former Roman Empire. And that system, according to the Scripture, is resurrected or reinstituted in some way. Most people agree that that has to be the, the... European Union, what used to be the European Common Market, now the European Union. We know that at the time the Antichrist takes power, there are ten major nations that support his leadership. During the first three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation period, three of those nations rebel against his leadership, and he destroys them. The Bible says he he destroys them wonderfully in peace he destroys them wonderfully now i'm not sure exactly what that means but he apparently does it in such a way maybe through diplomatic means primarily that everybody is just in awe at his leadership skills and his ability to to gather people together we know that those three nations are replaced in some form or some manner because at the battle of armageddon he's the leader of ten nations when he joins himself to the 200 million man army from the east. So the Antichrist presents himself as a man of peace and one of his signature achievements in the beginning of the the tribulation period is he makes peace, enters into a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. Now it's interesting that it doesn't say that he enters into a peace treaty that will last seven years because it doesn't. He breaks that peace treaty three and a half years into the, about three and a half years into the tribulation period. Well, then why would there be a time period for a peace treaty? The Antichrist enters into a seven-year treaty with Israel. Now, as I said, God's just defeated the Russian coalition armies, all but wiped out Islam, at least the active part of Islam. There's still Pakistan and India and the Philippine nations and the uh, nations of, well, uh, there are various other nations that still are are and will be Islamic. But you don't hear much about stuff going on in India that threatens the world or Pakistan as far as Islam is concerned. But he breaks a seven-year peace treaty with Israel moves his headquarters to Jerusalem, which is kind of strange if you think about it. 
if we're in a peace treaty, if we enter into a peace treaty with another nation, how do you move your headquarters to that nation? It could be militarily. This could happen after he breaks the treaty and then he makes an invasion against Israel. We don't know for that for sure. But we do know that about three and a half years, a little bit over three and a half years into this seven-year tribulation period, the temple of is, uh, in Jerusalem is rebuilt and he sits in the temple and proclaims himself as God. Now, by the midpoint of the tribulation, the primary reason that he goes from his pretense of being a man of peace to being a man of war is because he's failing miserably. I'm a, I get amused at myself because in the early days of my walk with God, growing up in the church, growing up in a denominational church, everything I heard about Revelation was scary. It was about the Antichrist. It was about the mark of the beast. Somehow or another as a kid, I was afraid somebody was going to mark me up against my will and then I was going to be lost forever. Well, we, a lot of people have a lot of stupid ideas about Revelation. Revelation is the revelation of Jesus, not the Antichrist. Revelation is the revelation of how God is so much greater than anything the devil does. By three and a half years, the halfway point of the tribulation period, as capable as the Antichrist is, and I don't doubt that he has diplomatic and, uh, abilities and charisma or whatever else he might possess, He's failed miserably. And when he proclaims himself as God, immediately things start happening that are outside of his control. To where the world sits back and has to wonder, what kind of God is this? He says he's God, but he can't control the weather. He can't control the plagues that begin. He can't control anything that's of value to mankind. Yet he proclaims himself as God. So now let bring, that brings us up to the last of the seven seals to be opened in chapter 8. So let's go to verse 1. And when he, speaking of Jesus, had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now nobody's got a good explanation of why that is. The best guess I've heard anybody make, and I still don't know if it's right, is because of the severity of the plagues that are about to come. But whether that has anything to do with it or not, nobody really knows. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Can I ask you a question? Who's praying? If we the church are gathered up into heaven and we're the ones that he sees, John sees as the crystal sea before the throne of God, I don't know about you, but my prayer time is done. What's there to pray for? You're in the presence of God. 
In his presence, there's fullness of joy. What prayers of all the saints? Not the prayers of the tribulation saints. The prayers of all the saints, it says. I want you to understand something, folks. Every prayer you've ever prayed has been kept and held to be poured out in Revelation chapter 8. Every prayer that you've ever prayed is still active, is still effective, and is still precious in the sight of God. I hope that one of the things that takes place in these last days is that we come to realize, like God realizes, what prayer is really all about. It's communion with your Father. It's based on a relationship with the creator of the universe who has chosen to be your father. Your prayers are precious in the sight of God and they're being reserved. Doesn't mean they haven't been heard until then. It means even the prayers that God's heard and answered, he's kept a record of them. You ever notice how much the Bible talks about God's books? God's into books. He seems to be a pretty good record keeper too. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angels' hands. Think about that from God's standpoint, folks. He's got his family gathered unto him. And the prayers of all of his children are poured out on the altar. And it rises up before him. Can you imagine the sense of pride and joy that God will feel? When that that represents the relationship that he has with his family is poured out in heaven. Oh, if only our eyes were opened just to see a glimpse of how God sees you. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Notice this is and an earthquake. This is not the same earthquake as the uh, sixth seal in chapter 6. There's another one involved. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees were burned up. The third part of all the foliage in the eastern, uh, the European Mediterranean area are destroyed. And all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire, this may be a volcano of some type was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and the third part of the ships were destroyed now let me back up here and make another comment to tag on something we said a minute ago and that is most of the really 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 bad stuff happens in the last half of the tribulation That's not to say that the first half of the tribulation is a picnic by any means. 
But we know that these plagues begin to take place from things that the book of Revelation tells us later on. We know that these plagues begin to take place after the Antichrist proclaims himself as God. And as I alluded to a minute ago, the world is going to sit back and say, he says he's God, not a God. He says he's God. And he can't stop this stuff from happening. What kind of God is this? Then it tells us about the next one, the next plague that takes place. The third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, upon the fountains of the waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, which means bitterness. And the third part of waters became Wormwood, and many died because, many died, many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. The reason that there are two separate plagues, one affects the sea, but the other affects the drinking water. A third part of the sea is made, well, the sea's turned into blood. A third part of the creatures of the sea, all the sea life in the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea are destroyed. A third part of the ships in the sea are destroyed. A third part of the drinking water, rivers and fountains, sources of fresh water in that part of the world are destroyed. Folks, I want you to realize people are complaining about the environment and all the things that we've got to do to protect it and all that kind of stuff here in our day. In the days of the tribulation, the last half of the tribulation, there's going to be such an extreme attack upon the earth and the earth's environment that it's hard to even comprehend. Yet the earth survives. I hate to get political about this, but I believe global warming is the biggest hoax. Climate change is the biggest hoax ever perpetrated on mankind. And that the notion that man is supposed to do something to keep the climate from changing is ridiculous. I mean, if that was possible, I'd like to pick and choose what day I want the climate to do what I want it to do. But you talk about climate change. Last half of the tribulation is real climate change. But don't worry, the news media will be here to report it. Verse 12, and the fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. If we assume as a general rule that daylight is 12 hours and nighttime is 12 hours, then that means one-third of the day will be dark. There will be only eight hours of daylight. And one-third of the night will be darker because of the change in the stars and the sun and the moon and so forth. Now, I want you to think about something. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to get... Uh, well, it's not an exact parallel. 
But notice the similarity in these plagues and the plagues that came upon Egypt. Egypt was always a type of the world, is always referred to as a type of the world in the Old Testament. But remember, one of the plagues upon Egypt was darkness. And it was darkness that they could feel. The Bible's specific about saying it was a darkness that they could feel. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I think we can agree it's supernatural. Hail mingled with fire was one of the plagues. The Nile River turning to blood and all the waters of the land turning to blood was one of the plagues. Notice how God seems to be following a pattern here. Again, it's not exact, but there are similarities. Verse 13, and I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Now, let me interpret that to you in modern day language. After the first four plagues, which are devastating, the angel flies through the, the air saying, now things are going to get really bad. Chapter 9. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Now remember, the sun and the moon have already, and the stars have already been affected. A third of them have already been darkened. Now you've got smoke that creates I don't want to say worldwide because when I say worldwide, I don't mean planet-wide. But it affects that part of the world in great degree with air pollution like nobody's ever experienced. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. So I want you to notice there's an overlap in some of these plagues. Remember back in the, uh, the first plague in chapter 8, verse 7, the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Well, if all the green grass has been burned up already, then there would be nothing for the locusts to harm in chapter 9. So the first plague hasn't yet run its course, which indicates that these are not single events but the things that begin to happen and continue over periods of time so if somebody's in that part of the world they're experiencing one plague after another or maybe a better way to say it is they're, con they're experiencing several plagues that are taking place at the same time that affect different parts of the earth so it was commanded the locusts verse 4 in chapter 9 again which commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. That's the 144,000, chapter 7. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months, 
And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death. People will try to commit suicide. And in those days men will seek death and shall not find it. They shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Now this is the only period of time since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden that death has been suspended. And the Bible says it is for a period of five months, specific period of five months. Now what kind of torment would people be under for there to be a worldwide, and again that means that part of the world, epidemic of suicide or attempted suicide? But they can't die. No one will be able to take their lives. Verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots to many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Hebrew, Greek tongue his name is Apollyon. Both of them mean the same thing, it means destroyer. One woe is past, and behold there come two woes hereafter. Now what are these locusts? I have no idea. You've got some people that, that teach that these are locusts, real locusts, living creatures. You've got other people that teach that these locusts are mechanized. It might be worth consideration. And I don't have an answer for this stuff, folks. I don't really care too much about it because I'm not going to be here. If I see it, I'm going to be watching from heaven. But it might be worth considering that the U.S. Navy has developed over the last several years a drone system that they call LOCUST. I don't have all the acronym right, but it's, uh, what is it? Low-cost, unmanned, aerial vehicle, ST. I don't know what the rest of it is. But these things are designed to work in tandem where one person, one controller controls this whole swarm which can be up to thousands that can exact, uh, that can complete the mission against a single target or against multiple targets. Now I say that only for this purpose. I certainly hope nobody in America is controlling these things in the book of Revelation. But it would stand to reason if America has developed this and it's in operation now. I'm not sure that they've been deployed, but they've been tested and ready to go. If America has developed this kind of technology, then it would stand to reason that the European countries, some of them at least, would develop the same things. Furthermore, it stands to reason that we might, through our allies, 
even share this technology with some of them. That may be what these things are. Some would say that the word in uh, chapter 9 where it says they're commanded not to hurt the grass, they would say that that means to eat the grass. But that's not what the word means. It means to harm. So the, the, the idea is mechanized mechanical drones or whatever don't eat grass. But the word doesn't mean eat as we would think of. It means harm. So I'm not sure what these things are. But I know they're bad enough for people who want to kill themselves to get away from them. But they won't be able to find escape even in death. Verse 13, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now let's talk about this for a minute. First of all, it tells us the, the period the duration of their operations. That is 13 months, one year, one month, that's 13 months, one, one day and one hour. 13 months and 25 hours. These things will be in operation. Now let's talk about the angels. Does God have any angels that are bound? then these can't be God's angels. Jude says that the, those that left their first estate, the angels that rebelled against God, are bound in everlasting chains into darkness. Well, now, the question then becomes, what is that darkness? Well, the Bible says the whole world is, lies in darkness, meaning darkness is the, the term that's used for this world system where sin and death reigns over those who don't know Jesus. So this could very well be, and again, I don't have a definitive answer, but this could very well be angels that rebelled against God that had been held and reserved for this one last work before they're forever dealt with. And so what do they do? It's interesting that they're bound in the river Euphrates or concerning the river Euphrates. The four angels were loose, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Their work is to destroy a, the third of the population that's left in that part of the world. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. That's 200 million and I heard the number of them. Now let me ask you a question. Where do we go to talking about the angels to talking about the number of the horsemen? Well, apparently these four angels that were bound in the river Euphrates have a specific work, and the work is to destroy the third part of men, third part of the population of that part of the world. But they're going to do it through an army. They'll be influencing and operating against an army. 
Now, if you look, know anything about your geography, and I'm not too familiar with that part of the world. I had to look these things up myself. But there is a natural barrier, two natural barriers, actually, that run through the nation of Iraq from any army that would transport themselves from the east, meaning China, come through India in order to get to this part of the world, the European and Middle Eastern continents. The only way that they can get there is to transgress or transverse these two natural barriers, which is the river Euphrates and the Tigris River. And if you've ever seen these rivers, I never have, but if you see pictures of them, this is not stuff where you just build, these are not rivers where you just build temporary bridges over to get this size of an army across. The waters would have to dry up. And apparently that's the work of these angels. Otherwise, why tell us that they were bound in the river Euphrates? Why not just say there were four angels that were bound whose work was to develop and influence this 200 million man army? It's got to have something to do with the rivers. But if the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, are dried up, there's a straight shot from China, who is the only nation on the face of the earth that could put together 200 million men for an army. By the way, they announced some years ago, it's been about 15 years ago now, I guess, they announced that they had the opportunity, the capability to develop a 200 million man army. Now that would be an interesting statement for some nation to make, just pull a number out of the air. It had to do with the Bible. So it says in verse 17, tells us something about this, this army. And I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth, jacinth just as a deep blue color and brimstone. Brimstone has to do with sulfur. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For, in their power, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were likened to the serpents. And had heads which, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues. Yet repented not of the works of their hands. Now let's back up a little bit and talk about what John's seeing. Two things. John sees the locusts. And he sees these horses that breathe fire. He's got to be trying to describe something that he's never seen before with something that he can relate to. Now we know that horses have been replaced as the mode of transportation for battle a long time ago with mechanized vehicles. We know that those mechanized vehicles are armed. We know that they're armored. We're familiar with tanks and things that fire shells and great explosive force. How would John, if John saw a tank in about 90 or 95 AD in the vision, how would he describe it? How would you? How would I? 
It would run forward like a horse. It would transport people like a horse does. But it explodes fire. Or a shell being fired from the front of it. How would you describe that? That may be what he's talking about. If so, that would certainly fit with a 200 million man army and the weaponry associated with it. But I want to leave you with one last thing this morning and that is the, the end of this chapter. We have the idea, or maybe I should just speak for myself. I've always kind of assumed that if people saw enough of the power of God that they'd repent. The Bible does not bear that out. You remember the story in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus said there was a certain rich man in Lazarus. It talks about both of them dying. The rich man in hell lift up his eyes and he began to talk to Abraham and he asked his concern for, Abraham, for his brothers left on the earth was evident. He said, send someone, send Lazarus back to the earth. Send somebody that can tell people about how bad this is down here where I'm being tormented in the flames. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. But, but the rich man speaks up and says, no, that's not enough. But if one rose from the dead, him they'd believe. Abraham responds, said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody even if he's raised from the dead. And of course, that's a reference to Jesus. Over and over and over again, God shows himself as a greater power certainly than the Antichrist and a greater power than the devil who supports the Antichrist and about the three and a half year mark of the tribulation gives him something extra to where he begins to operate in a greater and supernatural power. But let me begin reading again in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the work of their hands. Repented not of the work of their hands. I'm reminded of another saying that I always heard growing up. And that is, there are no atheists in a foxhole. You ever heard that? And the idea, I guess, is that if things get bad enough, people will cry out to God. But there was a story I heard that, that had a great impact on me many, many years ago. About uh, a plane crash in... Uh, the Bahamas, Bermuda, somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where it was now. But one plane was about to take off and another plane landed on top of it. And the plane that was about to take off was loaded with fuel. And so it was just, it became an inferno. But there was one guy, who was a Baptist guy. I heard it in a Baptist church. Heard this guy give his testimony in the Southern Baptist Church. He said... That when things started happening, for him, it was like everything slowed down into slow motion. And he said, there was a voice on the inside of me. Now, he's not spirit-filled. And he's not the only Christian on the plane. But he said, there was a voice that spoke on the inside of me and started giving an instruction. 
go here, do this. He told him to stand up and turn right. Turning right from his seat was taking him straight into the fire. Completely opposite of the way that he would, you know, that you'd think to go. But he said, for some reason, he said, I don't even remember thinking about it. I just started doing what this voice told me to do. Long story short, he got him out of the plane. He was the only survivor or one of the only survivors out of the two planes full of people, two planes full of people. But he said this. He said the thing that, uh, one of the things that made the most impact upon him is he said, I saw people that couldn't get out of their seats that were burning. He said, I saw them, their faces melting off of their skeleton. And he said, and they were cursing God as they died. I was a young man when I heard this, just a teenager. And I remember thinking at the time, realizing at the time, it's not a matter of just coming to the end and all of a sudden people cry out to God. There's a true evil in men's hearts that can only be replaced by the life of God through the precious blood of Jesus. God knows this, certainly. I think it's important for us to know it, too. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Interesting, the Bible gives us four specific things that people will be involved in when the church is gone. Murders, sorceries. This word sorcery is the word pharmacia in the Greek. It means pharmaceuticals. It means drugs. Drug use will be rampant. Nor of their fornication, sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. What's interesting about this to me is that if these are the things that are prevalent when the church is gone, and when God starts to show himself strong in some spectacular ways, shouldn't those be things that we watch out for in the world that we live in? And notice how in each one of those areas, there's a concerted effort accelerating each of these sins and these wrongdoings. Folks, abortions, murder. It's the shedding of innocent blood. Look at the drug problems that we have in the country. And one segment of society says the answer is to legalize it. Yeah, that's got to help. Sexual immorality. Gender identification. 
gay and lesbian activities. This transgender stuff. Look at what's going on in the world around us. Finally, thefts. Nobody seems to give a second thought to stealing anymore. Look at all these protests, supposed protests that are taking place in our country. What does looting protest anything? But people have the idea that they are entitled to it. There's such a sense of entitlement. Doesn't it stand to reason that these are the things that are going to be prevalent during the tribulation period? These are signs that we should look for in the last days of the world that we live in. I'm struck by the fact that the angel, after the four first plagues, flies through the air saying, Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, because things are really going to get bad now. I believe we have a moral duty and responsibility to rescue as many people from that period of time as possible. Why else would the Bible tell us the things that are going to come on the earth if not to impress upon us the importance of bringing people into the kingdom of God? If not to impress upon us the great need to pray for the help of the Holy Ghost to bring forth the precious fruit of the earth. Amen. Let's all stand. Well, let's do just that. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, your word says that Jesus is waiting for, and the only thing that he's waiting for is the precious fruit of the earth. And the thing that will bring forth that precious fruit of the earth, the harvest of people, is the moving of the Holy Ghost, that which is referred to as the early and the latter rain. We ask you, Father, for the rain. We ask you to move by your Spirit, not according to our plan or our purpose, not just to build our church, but, Father, that we would build the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we recognize the things that you're doing appearing to people all over the world in dreams and visions, appearing to Muslims in countries where it's forbidden to preach the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you care about the world much more than we do. We pray for the peoples of the world, Father that they would be open to hearing the truth of Jesus. But Holy Spirit, we ask you to move. We ask you to move in our nation. We ask you to move in South America. We ask you to move in Europe and in Africa and in the Middle East and in Asia and in the Far East and upon Australia and the islands of the sea. Move, Holy Spirit, to reveal Jesus unto people. Holy Spirit, you know how to reach them when we don't. Have your way, Holy Spirit. 
display the power of God that every possible person who is open and willing to receive would escape the dangers and the tragedies of the tribulation. Father, we pray for ourselves that you'd give us a greater heart for the world. Fill us with your compassion, Lord. Your desire that not one person would miss heaven and go to hell. We ask you for the heathen as our inheritance. And you said that if we'd ask, you'd give them to us. So we thank you for the rain, Lord. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the rain. We ask, Father, that healing would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. We pray that you would use denominational churches in things that their doctrine may even say don't exist. The things of you. We ask for revelation gifts of the Spirit. We ask for utterance gifts of the Spirit. And Father, we ask for the power gifts of the Spirit to be manifest in these last days like never seen or known before in the history of the world. Restore unto us, Father, the years that the locust has eaten. Years where we could have been working for you but didn't because we were caught up in our own stuff. Let your glory be seen and known. Let it be so in our day, even as your word declares, that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Believing. Amen. Amen. Say it with me. Thank God for the rain. Hallelujah. I want to challenge you to pray for the world. I want to challenge you to pray for the lost. They may be people that you know, people that God wants to use you to reach, maybe people you never meet. But let's be open to be used of God according to his plan and purpose. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. Thank God we're a part of the church. We'll be out of here before any of that stuff that we've been reading about happens. Let's take as many people with us as we can. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.